We're calling it Final Week, and for these three times, normally on Palm Sunday or the Triumphal Entry, um, that would be a one-week event, but we've been talking about it for three weeks because really the biblical story gives that much information and then some regarding that event. And uh, we want to spend a little extra time this week, and then we'll move next week to the resurrection. Matthew 21 It's page 697 if you're using the Bible that's in the pew rack in front of you. Let's start with uh, the event itself. And this time I'm going to go all the way to the beginning without comment on the events as they started on the uh, last week of Jesus' life on earth. Matthew 21, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them. And he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds then went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, it dawns on me that this particular form of this, we read the passage from the Old Testament, but we haven't said this one together. So if you have that passage right in front of you, look to verse 9. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, join me on this, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you not read? From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. So early in the morning as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it but found nothing on it except leaves. And then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So Jesus then entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. 
And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? Now let me stop there in a word of explanation. We're talking about John the Baptist here. Uh, if you know that part of the story, and I'm sure some of you do, uh, but if you don't, this is John the Baptist who came to introduce Jesus. He went around Jerusalem and all of the countryside in that area preaching, repent for the Messiah is about to come. It was a preparation message that he had. And the people went down to the Jordan River to get baptized in preparedness, to prepare for the coming Messiah. Because baptism represented then, as it does now, at least partially, the leaving behind sins and the things that you wouldn't want God to see in your life when he comes and makes a visible manifestation or a visible presence. That's what John the Baptist's ministry was, and he ended up being executed for his, uh, for his work by Herod the king. That story is contained earlier on in chapter 11 of the book of Matthew, if you want to look that up later on. But that's who he's referring to. So Jesus asked them, John, who by the way, pointed to Jesus and said, that's him. That's the Messiah from the Old Testament. All of those Old Testament prophecies are him, the person of Jesus. The same John who was received by the people as a great prophet and a great spiritual leader said Jesus was the one. And so his question was very simple and I think he's quite logical and intelligent in the way that he approached this. So he asked him in verse 25, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they will hold that they all hold that John was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we don't know. And then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Now I want to stop here and draw your attention to a paragraph on the insert that you have in your bulletin, the very top of this radical Jesus, radical gospel. I'm sure many of you have heard this quote in a summary form from C.S. Lewis, but I want to read the actual paragraph that it comes from in the book Mere Christianity. And I recommend that book. C.S. Lewis, I'm sure most of you have heard about uh, the Narnia Tales, Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe is probably his best-known uh, writing, fiction writing, but many other books, Mere Christianity being probably his best-known non-fiction one in which he presents many good arguments. I should say that C.S. Lewis's writings in Mere Christianity were not really writings. They're transcripts from radio programs that he gave during World War II. So they had, a, they had a, a live context to them that makes them all the more interesting in the reading. Radical Jesus, Radical Gospel, a quote here. This will not be on the overhead, so uh, you can follow it here if you wish. This is what C.S. Lewis says about Jesus and his personage here. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That's about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. 
A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And this is the point at which Jesus has come in his ministry. The obvious conclusion of what he has been saying is that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. The Old Testament reference to that would mean deity, which is what was making the religious leaders so upset. The Messiah was never just a prophet like John the Baptist. He was going to be God manifested in the flesh. All these prophecies of the Old Testament refer to that, point to that. And this is why they challenged him when the children were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They said, do you hear what these children are saying? This is blasphemy. And he said, yeah, I do hear. And they're speaking the truth. Out of the mouth of babes is where that expression comes from. They are speaking the truth by God's inspiration. They get it, and you don't. And there is the problem. So they challenge his authority to be speaking these things, and Jesus right now is putting it on the line. Instead of moving on to another ministry, he's saying, this is it now. This is where it all comes to a head. You either go with me or you go against me. But the option is not there to simply say, this is a great moral teacher. What Jesus you're talking about makes all the difference in the world. Sometimes we are really, really feel a little bit uh, bothered by the various um, things that go along with following Jesus. And we should be because there's been a lot of religious hocus pocus and a lot of religious legalism and formalism that goes along with it. But nevertheless, there is a real Jesus. And so, as soon as we say, believe in Jesus, or I believe in Jesus, someone would have a right to ask, what Jesus? I used to know a guy named Jesus Gonzalez. Jesus Gonzalez. Well, not that Jesus, right? Which Jesus? This Jesus. And there is an account here that leaves no room to say, well, whatever you want from Jesus, that's up to you. He's real. If somebody came to me and said, you know a guy that, you know a guy named Lloyd Phillips? I would say, yeah. And he says, well, you know, that, um, and tell me all kinds of things. And I said, no, 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 no. You got the wrong guy. That's a wrong Lloyd Phillips. I know Lloyd Phillips. In other words, if you're real, Jesus was real. And what he claimed for himself was so real that it made them want to kill him. It's a deciding time, decision time for them. So then the story that Jesus tells, which is really a parable. Just a reminder that a parable, well, you know what para is, something alongside of. A parable is a story that comes alongside of a principle to illustrate that principle, a teaching tool. Teachers in school use parables all the time. Tell a story about something that they would get so that you can illustrate or get across a bigger principle. Jesus did a lot of parables, told a lot of parables. 
the parables usually, though, have a main point. Not all the details in the parable can be parsed out and mean something, but parables usually have a main point. So here, verse 28 of 21, Matthew 21. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. And then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Wow, that's a pretty pointed parable, don't you think? Especially after he just got done doing what he did in the temple. And he just got, got done using a, a living parable, the cursing the fig tree, because it didn't produce fruit, obviously. He was pointing to them. You're the guys that God put in charge of his communication of himself to the world. You're not doing it. Not only are you not doing it, you are killing, destroying, or excluding those who are doing it. This is a very pointed story that Jesus is telling about those who were there ahead of them. So the principle of that is pretty obvious. Which of the one really pleased him? Ah, you know this from daily life. The people who talk the most are not necessarily the ones who do the most. The people who talk spiritual-like frequently are not the ones you want to get to know because they can't be trusted. It's all in the talk. People who put on the show, put on the religious dog, people who are very faithful in church and all kind of things and be the first to stand up and defend the Christian nation and the role of the church and its doctrines. Can you rely on them, however, to reach out and be compassionate to the lame and the blind? And what did he say here? The tax collectors and the prostitutes? Tax collectors? No. They deserve to be executed collecting taxes. And the prostitutes? And these dirty people? Sinners? No, 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 no. We don't want anything to do with that. But that's the mission. Well, I don't care if it's a mission. That's not very comfortable. We like the good stuff that goes with being a Christian or being religious, but we don't like. This is a human nature issue. And I talked about this, we talked about this last week a little bit. The longer we are in the faith, the more we have to do spring cleaning and experience revival. One of the songs saying, use the word revival, meaning Revive us again, Lord. I think I've gone off track. I think I've gone lackadaisical. I think I've gone gravity pull down to just religion, just human nature, just self-righteousness. Get us back on a track. Get us back on a track as a church. Get me back on the track as a person. Who in my life have I been sent to that I'm ignoring because, oh, I can say it, but not do it. I was reminded of that when I first, or probably not reminded, but learned this principle graphically. When I first started in ministry, a young man, we had a lot of contact with the Native American community, uh, an, an Indian reservation, and 
This was a young Indian male who became a Christian. Oh, we had so much hope for that young guy. He was good. I mean, he could speak. He could, he, as a 20-something, he could preach. He could do all kinds of things. He was really great. And there were others that just never seemed to make any progress. But over time, it was an interesting, um, interesting principle to look at and to see in operation. That young man, with all of his gifts and all of his proclamation and all of his zeal, didn't last. Didn't last. Not only did he not last, by age 26, he had committed suicide. And some of those slow-mos, some of those regular folks that came to Jesus and just plugged away, they're still out there plugging away. We're still in contact with some of them. And man, it's kind of sweet. Oh, they're not powerful. They're not eloquent. They're just faithful, doing the work of God, representing God where God put them. And I think that's true everywhere. You cannot, it's very important to not judge a book by its cover. Per that expression, I'm sure, many times. But this is exactly what he's saying here. Just because people say they are representing God, and they're the most vocal about it, and they're the most religious, is there anything in their hearts, anything in their lives, in their personal contacts and relationships, that look like this might be the heart of Jesus, the one who came to get us back on the track? Now, one more story, and then we'll draw some points from this. Now, before I do, um, is that Javin up there? Uh, Javin, give me the next one. It's called Dangerous Assumptions. It kind of relies, uh, relates to this particular point. Have you ever seen this quote? Any of you that have uh, invested in mutual funds or stocks and bonds, I know you've seen this quote. You've probably, it's, it's a uh, caveat with all of them. It says, past performance does not guarantee future results. This is a warning by law on all stock and bond investments in the United States. Now, the purpose of that, I think, actually is quite applies to us. Past performance does not guarantee future results. In other words, you cannot look at a stock and say, boy, that just was a really whiz stock. By the record, look at the record. So I'm going to put all my money in that stock. Within a year, it's nothing. Well, that happens, uh, but past performance is meaningful, but you cannot put all your faith in that. And I think this is what Jesus is saying to them. Well, they, they, they did a good job. They built that temple. They did all these kind of things, and they represented God and the nation of Israel, and they did all this. But by the time Jesus got there, there was nothing there spiritually. Not only was there nothing there spiritually, they were ready to kill him and throw him out. Take him out back and kill him because he represented what they had lost over time. All right, let me read this last story here in, uh, in um, this particular theme in verse 33. Listen to another parable, Jesus says. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. And when the harvest time approached... He sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. And then he sent other servants to them, more than the first. And the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. And so they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these 
tenants. He will bring them, those wretches, to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop and harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or the cornerstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to the people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. This is where you kind of lose your faith in the hippie Jesus. You know, this Jesus guy going around, giving the peace sign and saying, happy, happy, smoke some wheat. I mean, you know, have everybody, flowers, child, and everything like that. It's kind of a version of Jesus that we get used to sometimes. But then when you see Jesus in action, when he's confronted with evil and darkness and things that destroy innocent people, you see a very aggressive and bold Jesus. There is nothing wimpy about this Jesus. You guys have been given the job to represent God to the world, to the hurting, to the despairing, to the darkness. And this is what you've done. You've grabbed it for yourself. You made a kingdom for yourself. You made a religious kingdom in which you are in charge and God has nothing to do with it. Uh, it's not going to last. God is not going to take that. They finally figured out who he's talking about there. And it was pretty clear using an illustration. This is not going to hold up forever. But once again, Jesus is claiming to be the center of God's work. Now, I've used this illustration before, but I want to use it again. God, who has a house, gets to pick how you get into that house. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Matthew deliberately uses only twice the expression kingdom of God when he writes. Usually it's kingdom of heaven. But here he wants to personalize it. This is God's house we're talking about here. God owns it. It's his house. And he gets to say how you get into that house. God says, here's the door. You come in this door. You knock on the door. You come in this door. You don't crash it down. You don't climb in the window. You come in this door, and this door is Jesus. It was always Jesus, but in a different form. And now Jesus is saying, you know that door? That's me. You come in through this way because it's my house. Well, you got a house, and you get to pick how people get to come in your house. you got boundaries. You can't come in my house except by the door. First ring the bell or knock, or maybe even call ahead, whatever. You, can, you don't need to do that, but... If you come in my house by a window at 2 a.m., I guarantee the results will not be good for you. Maybe not for me either. I'm, I'm not telling you what the results will be, but they won't be that good. Why? Because it's my house. This is boundaries. God has boundaries. He has a right. To, if you've got boundaries, and we hear a lot about boundaries these days, why wouldn't God have boundaries? You can't say, well, you're God, you've got to forgive me, you've got to accept me, whatever I do and how I, whatever I say and whatever I put my faith in. That's up to me, not you, God. Well, who's God then? You are. I don't think so. I don't think it's going to work that way. Jesus didn't think it's going to work that way. 
So let's uh, talk a little bit about takeaways for life. What are some of the principles we can take for ourselves from this on an individual level? Number one, God is not afraid of questions or doubts. Is this really you, God, is a good question. Now, I say this because we spent a little time on this, mostly last week. When they asked him, by what authority are you doing this? Well, that is actually a good question. That in itself was a good question. That was probably the most honest thing those religious leaders said to him. By what authority? That's a good question. His answer was, you already know the answer to this. I'm not going to say it again just so I can jump through your hoop and be your trained monkey. By what authority? It's God's authority. It's God's temple. And you know, this is all John the Baptist and the scripture all pointed to me. That's the authority. It's God. But that's a good question. And I think it's a good question that people ask when they say, is this really you, God? You know what? God is not afraid of honest questions. I like honest questions. In fact, Jesus was uh, advocated skepticism. Jesus advocated that people not believe everything they hear. Or, oh, remember, Matthew chapter 7 said, There will be those who say, Lord, Lord, we did all these miracles in your name. We prophesied and everything. And he'll say, Depart from me. I never knew you. Jesus advocated skepticism. Ask God. He will give you some evidence. That is him. The question itself seems a little circular, of course. Is this really you, God? But I think it's a good question. I think it's a good, honest question. Is this really what you think? If you ask God that question honestly, I think he will open your eyes and your heart and show you himself. That's what God does. And if that doesn't happen, you're done. It's an honest question to ask. Is this really you, God? Is a good way to approach God about these things that we talk about here all the time. Number two. God is not a computer or impersonal force. He has boundaries, rights, and decisions to make just as we do. We already talked about this, but just a reminder. When you go to God, remember, God is not under any obligation, even if you jump through all the hoops. Get all your prayer language just right. Get all your words just right. Get all your theology just right. Now God has got to give you what you want because he's a computer. And if you figure out the computer code including the password, God has to spit it out. That's not true. Jesus was very specific about this. This is God's house, God's kingdom. And God is sick of you guys. He's taking it away from you and passing it on to somebody else. He's not going to quit just because you don't want to do his job. He's not a computer. And he's not an impersonal force. He has decisions too, choices. Number three, receiving Jesus is not like picking options on a new car or cuts of meat in the store. It's all or nothing. He's a person. He's God. Yeah, that's the theme of this whole week, really. The person of Jesus representing God. I don't know, you know, we don't, this is, may not be so common, but if you, I'm sure I could guess which of you would know this illustration you ever seen uh, in a butcher shop, you ever seen the picture of the cow on the wall and it's got dotted lines saying this part of the cow is this, the chuck roast, the, you know, whatever. This, have you ever seen that? Uh, if you haven't, I just described it for you. Well, that's what, hap what it looks like in a butcher shop. And you know what? I think sometimes people want Jesus in this way. They want to look at the map and uh, the little the body map of Jesus and say, well, I like that part. I'll buy that part. 
You don't chop up Jesus. It can't be done. He's personal. It's real. Anybody who's ever got married knows how this works. You know, on a date, you, you know people in a certain way. But you better know on the day that you get married that you, you bought the person. Well, you didn't buy them. They bought you. They got the whole package. Because for better or for worse, richer or poorer, sickness and health, you got the person. This is personality, personhood. And God is fundamentally, the nature of the God in this book is fundamentally personhood. Personal God. Not a, just a religious shopping trip. It is personal. You take Jesus or you don't take Jesus. But, add point four to this. There's a distinction between our position in Christ and our condition in Christ. Don't confuse birth with health or maturity. Now you see, I, I, that, that goes to the point I just made before. You accept Jesus as the Son of God. The deity, Son of God. The relationship is with God now. But there's a lot of growth to go yet. There have been many times when my son or daughters, I felt like throwing them out. But that it didn't change the relationship one bit. You can't change that relationship. Once that's your son or daughter, that's your son and daughter. I, don't, I just don't understand people who try to disown their children. You know why they try to do that? Because they're too proud to say, this is my child, this is a reflection on me, and it's all about me, the glorious one, and my child is giving a bad testimony about me, so I don't want anything to do with them. Or write them out of the will. Who does that kind of That's your child. You can't change that relationship. You can fix it, improve it, put a boundary around it, you can do all kinds of things to it, but it's your child. Once it's done, it's done. And that's exactly what this is with Jesus. This is a person. You have a relationship with God now. You need to improve it. You need to grow. You've got to get past the birth experience and keep going. But you can stop worrying about whether you know God or not or God knows you once you've made it real and personal in your heart. Number five, don't let what you don't know get in the way of what you do know. If God is calling you to go all in for Jesus, do it now. Recently I was rereading biography of Billy Graham. Billy Graham isn't, has been housebound now for several years, so a lot of people don't even know who I'm referring to anymore, but most of you probably do. But Billy Graham had a very successful uh, evangelism career, starting with Los Angeles in 1949. But 1949, a powerful crusade that made all the news in 1949, Recently, there's been a movie that referred to this, Unbroken. Uh, the star, or the main character of that story, uh, actually got saved or became a Christian in 1949 at that crusade. But Billy Graham was having a wrestling match with God before that crusade. He had been, some of his friends had been challenging him about, oh, you believe all this Bible stuff, this is so unscientific and so unscholarly, and, and you, you really believe that? You're more intelligent than that, Billy. I know you. We went to college together. We're educated. And this was causing him some stress. He had a walk and talk with God. Finally got on his knees and said, God, I'm all in. I, don't, I can't answer these questions. 
It's true. There are problems. There are issues. Gray areas, shaded areas, black and white doesn't work for everything. But I believe you're real. And it changed his life forever. And it changed his ministry forever. And God blessed him and used him. And it's true of all of us. At some point, you've got to go all in. You can't succeed at anything without going all in. You've got, you can't succeed in your business, on your job, in your marriage, with your children, or anything at all without at some point saying, I don't know that one, I don't know that one, I don't know that one, but I know enough to know that I'm all in. So what about you? Are you all in with this Jesus who was the king who went on to suffer, redeem you with his death, but he was the king and still is the king? You're going to answer all the questions there are out there about it? No. Most of the questions are just kind of like the questions that they were asking Jesus anyhow. They're not that sincere. They're just, oh, what about this? What about this? I don't know. You can't answer questions about anything in life that way. You've got to decide. You all in? I think this would be a good day for you to be all in. Make Jesus the king of your life. And this will mean a lot more than just getting a fire insurance policy from hell. It'll mean really knowing God. Father, we know that you are real and loving, but you are also God, and you don't play games. So we give ourselves to you today with sincerity, with good intent. We offer the things in our lives that are getting in the way from being all in for Jesus, different for everybody we know. But your spirit can lead us to the very things in our lives that need to be rooted out or changed or brought in. That's what we want to do. And Lord, if there's any here today who have never really given themselves straight out for Jesus, just show them yourself this morning. Touch them. Show them yourself and show them that their response is valued by you.